Hello, you're listening to No Such Word Is Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today I get to sit down with a blast from my past. Uh, We were about 10 years younger and significantly drunker the last time that we chatted. Uh, It's Michael Heifer is joining us today. Hi, Michael. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so excited to sit down and chat to you. We are both in very different work situations than we were the last time. Um, But if anyone doesn't know who you are, can you give yourself a brief introduction? Yeah, so my name's Michael, and I am the team leader of large hoofstock at ZSL Whipsnade Zoo currently. Yeah, and uh, you know, you're definitely in the zoological profession. You're a zookeeper through and through, uh, worked with numerous different species. Um, but where did your love of animals start? Um, I mean, it's come from, uh, I've had it since I was a kid, obviously. I think most most zookeepers would say the same thing, I'm sure you're the same um and I used to visit um London Zoo when I was a child and Marwell Zoo and I mean you'd walk into that giraffe house and who can't be in awe of the animals that you see in there so I think when I was young and seeing them that's sort of where it started for me yeah did you have a lot of pets growing up or was it mostly I did rodents mice (laughs) a complete curveball um obviously I don't look after those anymore but yeah they were they were my pets as like when I was a kid um and just a cat now so still got pets at home even when you're not at work oh always always so when you were kind of growing up obviously you had this love for animals when did you really decide okay I'm gonna make a career out of this um I think I I started doing it as sort of going heading towards veterinary stuff I think a lot of people I think alongside um animal keeping like the I mean you have to have the money as well at some point (laughs) And I mean, zookeeping is not the best paid profession. It's it's well known. Um, so I sort of aimed for aimed for vet and through sort of sixth form and um, GCSEs. I, I never really got the grades that you you needed to mm. to get to it. And I think I just sort of decided from then that if you're not sort of chopping animals up to to care for them, then I can I can care for them in in a different capacity. And I, zoo animals were sort of uh, another fascination. Like I said, giraffes at, at London Zoo. Um, sort of came from visit visiting zoos and um, I just I fell in love with them at a young age um, and then when I didn't get those grades for being, for being a vet I just decided to to try something completely different and that's where I went into my degree of zoo biology so where did you study that, that um, Nottingham Trent so um, yeah I went there and I, t- I took a year out and I, I think it was the best thing that, that was the best thing I ever did taking that year um, I went off and did a bit of traveling and then came back and started at Chesington World Adventures. I don't know if you've been, I'm sure. Um, uh, yeah, started there as just a bit of work experience. And once you've got that little bit of work experience under your belt, I mean, you can start puzzling where you want to get to. And I just fell in love with the profession through that. And um, it was just good timing where the giraffe and rhino started moving into Chesington and seasonal positions became available and the rest is history, as they say. So when you started at Chessington, was that paid role? Uh, it wasn't at the beginning, no. So I did two months um, work experience um, 
and then from there I became seasonal um, and then from that onto permanent so it just sort of the the usual ladder again I'm sure you're very well aware of that from the past um, but I think doing that voluntary role at the beginning of the work experience was just the best choice I ever made really uh, nine weeks yeah. of it and just yeah I did every section at the zoo tried them all and uh, fell in love with the large shoot stock and here I am. Yeah, I think it's so worthwhile um, to let people know that there's there's so much worth in like the graft, you know, just get your head down, work hard, you know, stick at it, you know, even if it's an entry level, if you're in the education department, even if you can get a seasonal position in the gift shop, like network, like talk to other staff members. I think it's a lot to be said for that. And I think getting your foot in the door is the best advice I always sort of say to people, take any job you absolutely you can. It's and get any experience under your belt that you can you know it's the most important thing in this industry um and yeah just networking again is another another sideline of that which i think is just so important if you if you're you know you put yourself out there and go and meet these people and you know my current job that i'm in at the moment i met my boss at a conference in 2014 um and here i am however many years later sort of doing doing this role and i still kept in contact with him all throughout those years and when jobs have come up you know we've chatted and maybe the time wasn't right but I'm now starting to work for ZSL and um, back in the UK moving back from Sweden very recently just feels right and I've done that via knowing people and <laughs> I mean a lot to be said for it as we say. Yeah, no, it's something I really love about this industry is, you know, you can connect with so many different people from many different walks of life, different cultures, different countries. And, you know, if you if you want to travel, if you want different experiences, the opportunities are definitely there. But, you know, you have to put yourself out there first. Yeah. I mean, um, look at our relationship. It started, um, let you say, 10 years ago, yeah. it was a drunken weekend in Spain. I came visiting yep. a friend. Yeah, we met and we've stayed in contact ever since then and I've mm-hmm. watched your career and you've seen where I've gone and here we are still keeping in contact. Yeah, it's amazing. And you've ended up working with friends of mine. I've worked with friends of yours, you know, <laughs> like it's Mutual it is throughout the industry. Yeah, it is the smallest world. Um, but you said there that you kind of dipped your toe in all the waters when you started off at Chessington working in different departments. Did it become obvious very quickly that Hoofstock had your heart? Yeah, I mean <laughs> It's hard, like I said, not to be impressed by the big stuff. You know, when I mm. saw that, when you see those giraffe and at the time, they, the biggest thing they did have was zebra when I started out there, but that was the, you know, the, the special place to be at Chesington and getting to do a week work experience on the zebra house wasn't, not everyone got to do it. So um, when they asked me and said, oh, do you want to work on the zebra house week? I, I just jumped to the chance and um, I really fell in love with them then. And then it was just sort of place, right place, right time when they opened up the, the new ride Zufari. Um, they got the giraffe and rhino at the same time and the seasonal roles became available. Um, I mean, I did reptiles back then. I did the reptile house, never thought I would enjoy it. I actually did a bit of time in the aquarium. Loved that. Just, I, you know, I tried different things. I mean, the aquarium, lots of water tests and different bits yep. and pieces like that. And I mean, I didn't think I would love it as much as I did. I think once I found... Um, the large shoe stock and all those um, all those ungulates I, I really did just fall in love and yeah never look back. So for anyone listening who is wondering like what a day in the life of a hoof stock keeper looks like you know what what do you guys do? Um, it is a lot of poo shoveling um, we do a lot of that it is a, I'd say about 80% of our role um, so I look after currently the giraffes the white rhino the hippos 
um, and the Indian rhino. They're the four big species we have. And I mean, with any of those species, um, it is a lot of um, muck to be to be mucked out. And that is most of our morning. That is what we spend our time doing. Health checks, um, cleaning out and you know checking the animals over. Um, you do get a bit of spare time and afternoons we do do animal training. Um, we've had quite a lot of giraffe um, foot care training. So I'm actually going around a conference for that in a couple of weeks time. Um, we do uh, yeah, animal training enrichment, obviously, and food provision as well. So if animals like the giraffe, the bongo, I've looked after a carpi in the past, you need to have browse, you need um, the browse provision for them. Um, and obviously smaller zoos, you'll go and collect that yourself and um, constantly giving them that food source because uh, obviously they eat quite a lot being these big animals that they are. How does that work in the winter as well? Um, we still give them the browse. So we give them just leafless browse often. Um, it gets delivered for us. We're saying we're very lucky. Um, but then we have a silage um, food as well. So we'll, we'll feed them packed um, barrels that we'll pack during summer and we open up in winter so they can have that. Uh, and then they do get lucerne and horse age as well. So it's like a supplement on the side. They don't get pure browse, but they get less but we do still provide it and you can freeze it we i mean i'd love to have a big freezer here that you can pop it in and just defrost it and i've used that in the past and um so you can still get all those leaves into them that they need i do love that you know obviously from the marine mammal side you know we're working basically in fish you know we don't really we don't really have any foliage um oh. and it was a conference i was at and it was some i can't remember what zoo it was a video conference and they were taking us through kind of how they provide enrichment for their animals throughout the winter months and that was the first time I had really thought about oh my god like yeah like when there's no leaves on the trees like where yeah. where does the food come from it's a challenge I mean I mean looking after these African animals in winter um obviously I, I worked at Carl Martin Zoo pre um yeah. as well and when the temperatures there get down to sort of minus 25 looking after giraffe that shouldn't really go outside in below 10 degrees is, is a massive challenge you have to keep them stimulated obviously we could scrape the yards and we could give them access outside for short periods of time during winter and um we did but it was um it was a challenge and providing that food for them is a massive challenge for all the african species and obviously providing the housing the heating there's a lot a lot to think about alongside alongside the feeding yeah was that the biggest change that you found um going to Comarden in Sweden um we'll obviously talk a little bit about you know that jump yeah, in your yeah. career um was that the biggest difference in the animal care side of things that you found was like coping with the the weather and the temperatures yeah I mean that that weather they they had it down to a tee when I before I had arrived you know they they knew what they were doing they've been doing this for many years but I think the temperature um obviously out in Sweden is a, is a massive factor for a couple of months of the year it's not as bad as it once was in sweden i think with the temperatures being so cold you know they could the animals could stay outside a lot longer now and uh, with with the changing climate but january's and february's were really tough um and they knew which animals they could they could house well mm. um they obviously had some african species and that's where we put a lot of our time and effort into the enrichment into the feed into the um into their care and the heating etc so that they could they could thrive during the winter months and then summers were just were glorious you know they were out in this lovely big savannah um, and you could just sort of release the animals out there so the winters were tough but the summers were you know much higher and i try to explain that what's the word to say they, they were glorious and the winters were were a bit tougher yeah i mean i think you find that in nature anyway like winter exactly, yeah. winters Ups are always downs. tougher like there's of course definitely um so let's talk about your jump 
moving away from the UK. Where did that yeah. decision come from? Um, it was, it actually occurred <clears throat> just one day at work. I was working up in Chester at the time and I just wanted a change. I was, mm -hmm. I was enjoying myself up there and I decided that I was going to do something outside my comfort zone. And um, I spoke with um, an ex-colleague, Linda Bergren, who is working out in Sweden. I know you know her well, Marie Mammerworld. <laughs> um, and I actually just sent her a message and just sort of said, look, I'm not, it might not happen today, it might not happen tomorrow, but if something does come up in the future, I'd just be really interested to, um, to, to come and work for you. I'd visited Karl Marden the year before. Uh, I saw the Hoofstock section and I was there in the, one of those glorious summers. Um, and I just thought this looks absolutely incredible. And it, it, so I don't know what really happened. There was sort of like a, a switch that flicked in my head one day. And I just sent her this message. Um, and, you know, it could have been a bad day. And I just, I did it. And she said, um, yeah, nothing, nothing there at the moment, but I'll bear you in mind. And that was the beginning of that journey, really. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful, though, that like sometimes all it takes is just a message? Yeah. It was. And then, I mean, six months down the line, it, it took a while to, to get that point, but she obviously kept me in the back of her mind. Yeah. And like we were saying about making these contacts in six months time, she said, look, there's a Hoostock Keeper role available. Um, mm -hmm. If you want to put your name in the hat, absolutely do it. And the, I mean, the job went out on IASA and as, it, as they all do. And I put my name amongst the rest of them and there I was, I was successful. So that happened in the February um, 2018. And then by April, I was living in Sweden and I mean if you'd have said that to me a year prior I just wouldn't have believed you, you, that I was going to be doing that. So what was it like moving like was it a massive culture shock? Um, I mean it's a it's an amazing country I don't know if you've been over to Sweden. I haven't it's, no. It's, it's beautiful it's such a beautiful country um, they all speak amazing English which is really really helpful I'm not sure how you find it living, living abroad and with the language oh, the, ne the Netherlands every everyone automatically even if I try and speak in Dutch exactly. they'll just reply in English <laughs> and I was speaking broken Swedish back to them and they were replying back to me in English yeah. you know it, it's the way it's the way it goes but it makes it a lot easier to, to adjust to you know even mm. if they were um, I was learning the language of course I was putting my uh, myself out there trying to learn that language um, while I was learning that language, if, if I heard a word or if I had a word that I didn't understand, I could ask them mm -hmm. and say, hey, you know, what does this word mean? And because they spoke such good English, they understood the word yeah. in English. They could tell me in Swedish. And we had this, you know, um, we, we worked it quite well. And I learned the language uh, very quickly. Obviously, that was the, the biggest thing for me was was the language. Um, but I really, again, set myself a bit of a mental challenge. Like, I am going to learn this language. I don't want to operate my days in, in English. I'm living mm -hmm. in, a, in a foreign country. I want to immerse myself in their culture. And yeah, and I think I that's the best way to learn another language. Like really? I've never been able to learn a language through books or through apps. But if you had said to me 10 years ago, you'll speak four languages, I'd have been like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Like absolutely. You've got no 40 way. on there. I'll tell you, just the one for me was enough. <laughs> but it's, it's it, I tell you, it's exactly the same thing. Like all, yeah. like I just ended up moving to those countries and just being like, all right, everyone just talk at me in your yeah. language and I, I will think figure it out <laughs> and just become Im completely immersed yeah. in it because the, I mean you can read as many books as you want you can mm -hmm. read as many you know, sure there are bits of my grammar that are still completely wrong but yeah you can read up on that as much as you want but to actually live it I think is a completely different um kettle of fish really and that is exactly what I decided to do in Sweden and um I lived with this I lived with a Swedish couple while I was out there oh that's helpful and, too uh, 
it was it was really helpful so at the beginning they were very good and then actually as time went on i would come home and say my brain is frazzled i've been talking swedish all day long can we please talk english so oh, it changed nice. it flipped and they they were so um you know they were really accommodating of that they helped me through with the language and then they they we spoke in english and we still do to this day <laughs> like i've never really <laughs> spoken swedish to them whereas my days i would operate in swedish yeah i always get into trouble because i never talk to my husband in dutch um <laughs> it's just automatic though obviously because when we met i didn't speak dutch and he's half french and i didn't speak french when we met i only spoke english and spanish and now i'm fluent in french sometimes we speak in french mostly yeah. mostly just if we want to like say talk shit basically and not have anyone understand what we're saying <laughs> we'll, french language. We'll, switch, we'll switch to french um that's quite handy to have that yeah it's like a little marital like if we if we need like a little in joke we'll just uh we'll just switch to french yeah, or if i want to I give him that. into trouble without looking like a bitch i'll just like <laughs> I'll, I'll give him into trouble in french and then no one yeah, knows what i'm saying french, it's quite lucky i have a i have a swedish friend actually in the uk she moved at a similar time to me from Carmorden, and she um so if we're out and about you know i can use that little secret language mm. sometimes and swedish is obviously not really spoken widely well, yeah, spoken language. I mean... so although i did have a moment the other week on on a train where uh there was a couple stood next to me and they looked me up and down and they made a comment about skinny jeans in swedish no. and I, yeah ah. this, is in, this is in london and i just stood up and in very very calmly in swedish just agreed just said that i agree <laughs> they looked so shocked that's amazing i mean yeah like if i talk shit in french i'm you know there's there's probably someone who's going to understand somewhere like yeah. it's quite a common language but yeah swedish is is quite obscure um uh, yeah it is to come across that. that's hilarious i bet they were so <laughs> confident in like oh he's not going to understand this. yeah they absolutely were and I, I was with my partner at the time and he said to me what's what are you saying what are you doing i was like i had to explain the situation they're talking shit about us <laughs> that's brilliant i love yeah, oh, right. in to the middle of london the... obviously you're never too far from a swede yeah well i mean london like london's <laughs> quite touristy as well I suppose. It, yeah. so yeah you're gonna run run into some people so um yeah. what was one of your biggest takeaways um from working at colmorden what what were some of the things that you enjoyed the most about working there the freedom that they they give you it's a really special place i would urge anyone who's not been over to visit it's just an hour south of Stockholm um, and if you are visiting Stockholm it's very easy to do on the train um just head, head south a little bit it's it's just the most beautiful place you, it's like no other place I've ever really been and I went as a visitor and I saw it and was just blown away um you know they have acres and acres of land I don't know exactly how much it is it's the largest in Scandinavia I know that much um but I went on the cable car above um the large hoof stock animals that I would then one day be working with but I, I looked at those animals and thought this is just phenomenal um and they've got the space they've just got it right um so to get to work there was just it was magic for me really I, when I turned up in 2018 and my first day was sitting alongside the dolphins in the dolphin area I had a meeting with uh, Linda and uh, we caught up about everything that was going to be going on and I was just like this is this is unbelievable you know the dolphin, even the dolphinarium there unfortunately is going to be closing in the next few years and it's a real I shame a massive shame and i do think they have an amazing amazing place there so i yeah. think to get there and see the dolphinarium as well before that were to close down yeah um, definitely yeah. i mean if covid hadn't happened i would have visited jenny already like one of my best friends was yes. um a dolphin yeah. trainer up there she's also moved back to the uk and we were again you know jenny as well it's such a small world <laughs> jenny was my roommate in the dominican and we oh, worked wow, together amazing. in tenerife and then she yeah, went she off and uh, 
worked in. So we had like a little group of expats out there that we, um, I mean, one of them is still out there and she was the one, um, she moved out there. She was second of, of all the Brits or third maybe to move out there of all the Brits, but there was like a little group of them. Mm. Uh, and there were, a, there were a few more other um, Europeans as well working out there. It was a very um, international place. And obviously COVID, it changed the path of lots of people's careers, probably yourself and mine included. Um, and it, it did the same thing there. So it was a it was a tough time to get through. Yeah. Uh, we did come out the other side of it, but that was part of my reason for deciding yeah. to move back to the UK and sort of realise you can't see your family every day or if you wanted to. You have to Yeah, get on for that me it was plane. like the I'd always known that that plane ticket was going to be there. Like yeah, if I wanted yeah. it, like I would have been able to like use vacation days or like work extra yeah. and save up hours and I could have gone home. But when the borders closed and you're yep. like, you visit, like you wouldn't have been allowed to go. Like that was hard. I was stuck away to two lots of, it was two lots of eight months. I believe I was, I, I stayed away for, and I think that's the thing is the fact you, that you physically couldn't go. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a fact of, um, you know, not seeing them I felt like that was okay but you actually physically couldn't get mm-hmm. on, a, on a plane and, and they stopped doing the you know the services the plane the you know the planes just obviously weren't going and I think yeah. you know, I'm really Sad. really isolated here I was having a lovely time in Sweden don't get me wrong yeah. but um you just yeah you couldn't see the family and friends that you once could that were so accessible you know these yeah, the flights there, 10 pounds weren't there yeah the option wasn't there what was it like I mean not to reminisce on COVID days but honestly I love that you said that you were having a lovely time because like aside from all of the anxiety of like not seeing family and friends we had the best time at work because we were closed so it was literally just us and the animals and in that time as well the our polar bear had just had three cubs and um right as the first lockdown started was when they came out of the den so they were just experiencing the world and we went every day like the polar bear exhibit <laughs> private was private time of seeing the polar bear and it was so good because they <laughs> they didn't see humans the only humans yeah. they saw were us so every time we came it was a novelty like every yeah. single time they saw us they were like oh this is fun what's going on and we just got to watch polar bear cubs grow up for like two months and then just do what we wanted with the whales yeah. what was it like for you Amazing. Um, I think very similar to be fair I mean obviously the, the zoo in Sweden closed for the entire winter anyway that was that was yeah. every year but um, Sweden didn't really have the lockdowns I'm sure you that was yeah Jenny told me yeah it was yeah they were very very on the other side of um, you know everything in Europe they did the complete opposite thing um, so actually I was living a normal life you know and I was contacting my other half in the UK saying what you know what you're up to today and he said I don't think you realize that we can't leave the house yeah you know, I'm not we actually can't go outside and I was living in the most beautiful idyllic little village in Sweden overlooking the sea with a balcony you know I just sat out there with my coffee my wine and lived my best life in in Sweden yeah. and as much as I was sad I couldn't get home I don't think I'd have wanted to do that anywhere else it was yeah it was the most magic place that's true um and obviously yeah, very tough times and COVID times for everyone were tough but yeah I think I had it a little bit easier than probably a lot yeah. of the rest of you. I mean, I'm very grateful that, you know, the first lockdown, I I was able to go out to work because France yeah. was very strict. Like we had to have papers yeah. to leave the house. Like you, you oh. had to go, we needed like a government thing from work saying, yeah. well, obviously like the animals need to eat. We have to be there. <laughs> so, you know, we were quite lucky with that, but everyone else was restricted to like within one kilometer of their home you know like 
crazy. Yeah, like if you had a dog. This was actually a real time in our lives. I know, isn't <laughs> it weird? It's yeah, so weird is... to think back on. Um, but I think like for both of us, it definitely changed our mindset of living Absolutely. away from home. Um, I know that for me, it was like, well, I'm either going back to Scotland to be with my mum or I'm going to the Netherlands to be with my then boyfriend, now husband. Um, yeah. What was it like for you? Yeah, I think it was the same thing for me. I, I did. So I left Sweden uh, in 2022 and that was sort of coming out the other side of COVID. I mean, mm-hmm. you could argue I'd, I'd got through the worst of it. I'd done, yeah. we'd done, I'd done two years of COVID there and all the restrictions and not coming home. But I think um, in the back of my mind throughout COVID, I just knew that I needed to start making plans uh, with my partner. I wanted to live with him and yeah. I wanted to be near family, you know, and it would take the right job to come up for me to move home to. I, I wouldn't have just moved for anything. And, mm. um, I, I'm obviously I'm still very career driven and I wanted to keep my career going. And I didn't want to just stop that and leave. Um, I mean, if it had got, if it had gone on much longer, maybe I, I would have, maybe I could have, but I think it was um, that that really pull, pulled me back home. And yeah. I'm, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I made the move. Sweden was, a, like I said, a real magic time in my life. Glad I've done it. I've glad I've been there. But it, for me, I remember Linda actually saying to me, um, "I knew we had you on loan." When I told her that I was going to be leaving, and that, that I mean, that was super sad for me. That I mean, yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I immersed myself in the culture. And I was um, part of, part of the uh, you know Swedish workforce, but she she did say that, and when she said that, I thought, "Yeah, this is it's time." Yeah. So what was it move. like? going home after four years were there like did you start kind of comparing like the different training methods or the different ways of working and start to think okay how can we kind of bring both of these together yeah I think so I mean obviously when you work at different collections you know this is also like you sort of bring you cherry pick the best parts and the worst parts You, you you collect those bits that you want to do and you try and leave behind those bits that you weren't so keen on and um, you know, I, the Karl Martin had such a, a forward way of thinking with its large food stock, lots of large areas of mixed species exhibits, and um, Whipsnade is is a, is a great place as well, a great zoo, the, the largest zoo in um, in the UK. Um, but I think both zoos could learn learn stuff off each other, and I think you just don't want to stop um, progressing. That you, mm. you don't want to ever become static. Um, so I think for me, that's what I'm always trying to do. Whatever zoo I go to, you know, prior to Martin, it was Chester and Chesington and I'm pretty sure I took some some of those things over to Sweden with me um so you just sort of try and blend together the best parts and put them all together on one section yeah so what are some of your focuses at the moment for the hoofstock section uh, we're working quite hard on the, um, the foot care the training um so there's quite a lot of that going on with some of the larger species um the giraffe for example, we're doing quite a lot of tra- foot care training with them. We have a new um, giraffe calf. He's a year old. So we're starting up a training program with him. Some of the team are doing really good work with that. Um, we have foot care training going on with our Indian rhino. They're very prone to foot, foot problems. Um, so we're working with them. Um, every sort of species brings its own challenges. Mm. Um, and you've obviously got, I'd never worked with hippos before I turned up at Whipsnade. So I'm learning the species, but also um, leading you know, on the section and you know, working with these animals, doing things like wayboard training, simple things like that. So um, there's lots of good good training going on with us and obviously the breeding as well. So we could have pregnant giraffes currently, possible pregnant white rhinos. Um, they're really prolific um, in breeding the hoofstock at Whipsnade. So it's a really exciting zoo to be a team leader 
at and um, take over that Hoofshot team. Yeah, and just obviously, you know, for endangered species as well, like it's amazing to be a part of things like breeding programs and, you know, yeah. husbandry training and making sure that, you know, they're as fit and well as they can be. Um, yeah. Obviously, with zoos being quote unquote controversial in the media, I would say hoofstock less so. Um, yeah. <laughs> not, not quite the <laughs> no, same as killer eels. I was going to um, say, you know, all about the controversial animals. So you've, you've been there and done that. <laughs> But um, what would you like to speak to with the importance of um, keeping animals in human care and preserving them? I just think the conservation message needs to be driven home. I think ZSL specifically pumps millions into, into conservation every year. And without these flagship zoos, that money just would not be there. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, the, the, the main thing, I actually watched it on um, the TV the other day. There was a, a debate going on about should zoos be there. But you know they're saying release the animals to the wild but actually one of my keepers said the other week what wild what you know the world is burning there are, there are forests being destroyed where where are we going to put these animals so for us to continue to hold these these iconic animals as a bit of a genetic pool um for the for the future for the preservation in the future i think is is critical you know there's sort of three thousand three one thousand three thousand pygmy hippos left in the wild and we're hopefully going to be breeding them in the next few years and it just it is really important for the future of these animals in the wild to have these zoos in place obviously there are good zoos and bad zoos so I would just say research a zoo and go to good zoos and put the money into good conservation charities such as LSL. I think that's such a worthwhile message my goodness Yeah. yeah that's incredible I think we're going to leave it there I think Thanks. I think you've said it all. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down you, and chat with us today. It's been great. It's been great chatting. Thank you very much. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and I will catch you all next week.